Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, January 7th, 2022. I am John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Noah Rothman is on vacation. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So, can we talk about the Lynn Manuel Miranda moment yesterday uh, during the filibuster-like length commemoration of January 6th, where roughly 250,000 people spoke from Statuary Hall to talk about the, you know, their experiences and the terrible time that it occurred and celebrating the Capitol Police. I mean, there is something, I don't care if it was the worst threat to democracy in the worst day since 9-11 and we need to celebrate it, there was something really off about this. It had a kind of weird uh, memorialization, uh, overdoneness, uh, lack of um, perspective, and, uh, and, and then came the Lin-Manuel Miranda moment in the middle of all of this serious you know, reflection on the nature of our democracy and all of that. Nancy Pelosi is like, and now here's Lin-Manuel Miranda. And Lin-Manuel Miranda comes on the on a Zoom and says, you know, this is a wonderful country, uh, our democracy. And then the cast of Hamilton sings a song from Hamilton, a lesser known song called Dear Theodosia. Why is this weird? Dear Theodosia is the sympathetic song in the show sung by Aaron Burr, who of course ends up being the dueling killer of alexander hamilton later in the show and then the show ends and uh at the at the end of the show burr says now i'm the villain in the narrative well it's not just that burr was a villain in the narrative of the killing of alexander hamilton uh after uh his vice presidency uh and after he killed alexander hamilton uh, he led a seditious conspiracy against the united states so a song was sung, a sympathetically a sympathetic portrait of the loving father of the first genuinely seditious American politician, because he attempted, we don't really, it, it's still lost in the vagaries of history what exactly it was that he was doing, but he kind of recruited an army. They wanted to take over part of the Louisiana Purchase uh, or uh, some other part of, you know, what was then considered the American West. Uh, and it fell apart. He was actually uh, arrested and then tried uh, and and was not convicted for uh, lack of evidence, but not because he was proved innocent. And so in the middle of the commemoration of January 6th, there was a song, a positive song about somebody who actually staged a seditious conspiracy against the United States. Any thoughts? It was like, I'll just say one thing, which is that it reminded me of the the absolute misreading of a cultural moment that happened when all those celebrities during lockdown did that Imagine video and then sent it around. It was the sort of political version of that. It was so, uh, it's such a tin ear that Nancy Pelosi had to do that. I just, I think it was wrong. I also have to say, I did not, I, I, I didn't even realize that they were going to do an all day thing here. I, we watched the, obviously watched the president and the vice president's speech, but I had no idea that it was, it was like an Olympics opening ceremony style event. And I, I would be curious to know how many Americans actually tuned in for even part of it. Um, I doubt it's very many, but it, it struck me as not 
being completely unserious about certain things where it should have been serious, um, but also kind of not really quite settling on the note. So we had a very clear tone from from the president in his speech, but the rest of it was sort of a jumble. And so in that sense, it didn't really have a coherent as entertainment, as performance, as, as a production, didn't have a clear theme. John, I'm going to, as you say to Noah, well, you did a good job of, of detailing the substance, which is well and good. But I'm, talk, I'm looking at the, the, the general picture here. Why the hell was there a musical number at all? yesterday exactly um, which which really was my overarching thought look they're treating it like a holiday they are turning it into a holiday and that is that gets at you know why you were saying yesterday and i agreed that you're uncomfortable with um the way the, the this was being approached even by those with whom you you agreed to a large extent about the severity of of what happened on january 6th this is not treating it like a serious event. This is not treating it like an awful point in our history. This is fetishizing it for an entirely different purpose. And my conclusion is that if they think Americans don't see through that, they're crazy. I mean, it, it reeks of insincerity and production and theater and performance. I, I think that's, that's perfectly put. I think that's exactly right. And, um, they of course don't know that people don't feel this way. It's like the problem with politicians, they don't know that people don't like them because most of the people they come into contact with do like them. And then they decide that the people who don't like them are, you know, being driven, uh, to dislike them because of, um, propaganda being spelled out by being, being spewed out by George Soros or Facebook, which needs to be suppressed, right? Like, they they don't know that we've now lived through basically half a century in which the opinion the good opinion of politicians is has been you know systematically or like over time has downgraded and degraded itself and that and that when people like that get all uppity and and self-righteous um even their own backers get a little woozy unless they are really drinking the Kool-Aid and really buy it. Like that's why you want to understate uh, on occasions like this rather than overstate. You let the, the, the power of the occasion itself should bring 70% of the emotional or 80% of the emotional force, right? Turn, go pageant with it. And then the entire country is like a fourth grader at, you know, at the show at Mount Vernon, where you get to see George Washington not chopping down the, you know, chopping down the cherry tree and telling his dad about it. And even then, when you're nine or 10 years old, you roll your eyes at the obviousness and the, and the woodenness and the falsity of what it is that you're seeing. Um, so I don't know. I mean, and it went on like it wasn't just them. It was then also, you know, CNN and MSNBC who are basically the handmaidens of this of this, uh, you know, day long performance. Uh, there was another remarkable moment yesterday on TV. And I, I bring this up not because I particularly want to um, insult Ted Cruz, but I, I don't know how else to discuss this. Ted Cruz went uh, Ted Cruz 
having referred to uh, the perpetrators of January 6th as terrorists, then went on Tucker Carlson's show, was attacked by Tucker, and then abased himself an apology for having spoken falsely or having, you know, been said something stupid or something like that. Um, of course, they were terrorists. Like, I mean, they, they, they weren't Al-Qaeda terrorists. They didn't fly a plane into a building or anything like that, but they were, they were individual, uh, you know, non-uniformed citizens staging some kind of a deranged paramilitary attack on a government institution. I don't really know they've, what you they've would also, call that. I, they've also, by the way, been charged with terrorist-related charges, some of them, about destruction of federal property or, you know, that their handling or or presence on federal property in an unlawful sense that are actually under the rubric, broader rubric of, of terrorist charges. And the FBI has discussed them as domestic terrorists. That's clearly the, the, the sort of label that's been given to everyone who has been charged. And they have been charged. I mean, this is actually something that I think the other side of the aisle uh, tends to downplay. You know, they're, they're getting the book thrown at them and, and, as well they should. So yeah, they actually, the idea that he should apologize for calling them what they in fact have been charged with doing is very strange. Why are so many Republicans scared of Tucker Carlson? I mean, I get it with his ratings, but you know, when they, he should have gone in there and said, yeah, they were terrorists. This is bad for the party. This is bad for our side. Why we should call, call this what it is and move on from this. This is bad. He didn't do that. It was very strange. I mean, I, you know, uh, a lot of people on the right have been discussing the crisis in masculinity over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, this was as unmanly a public display as I've, I, I have almost ever seen. I mean, it is, it was a contemptible uh, bit, you know, as contemptible in its own way as the way Ted Cruz, who of course attempted to oppose Trump's nomination at the convention in 2016, and then had to finally sort of give in and, t- and have the picture taken of him, um, you know, fundraising for Trump, who called his wife ugly and said his father might have been uh, part of the uh, assassination plot against JFK. Like, if any human being would have the right to say, I'm sorry, I'm not doing anything for that guy because of the way he talked about my family, it would have been Ted Cruz. Um, you know, uh, people reveal themselves in interesting ways. And I'm not talking about him politically. I'm not talking about his, although I think he's often a very ham handed and, uh, ham fisted politician. But, um, you know, if, if, if he thinks this, this, this establishes future viability for him, kowtowing doesn't ever establish future viability for a politician and kowtowing to a TV host, even a smart TV host with a lot of viewers, does not establish you as somebody to be taken seriously. In fact, it's much better to attack a television host for attacking you than it is to like suck up to them. So, um, uh, that was a pretty, pretty gross moment, uh, uh, in 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 the course of a a day in which there was a lot of performative grossness, as I think we're as I think we're all we're all <laughs> acknowledging. Um, let's move on to a very another weird phenomenon. Um, uh, we have talked about some of this earlier in the week or at the end of last week. Well, not the end of last week because we were we were doing other stuff. But um, there is a move on the part of the ultra-hawkish COVID talks. Um, 
to uh, come at the subject of COVID in a new way and to try to seize, I think, from the right, the idea that we need to learn to live with COVID. Um, former Biden advisors, as it said, Ezekiel Emanuel, uh, the um, uh, a doctor uh, brother of, um, of uh, Rahm Emanuel and Ari Emanuel, the super agent, um, and the um, and the guy who said that uh, you know two million people would die in 2020, uh, Michael Osterholm, uh, put together a letter signed by a couple of other people following an op-ed they did, in which they say we need to learn to live with COVID. Uh, we can't go on like this. Clearly, the effort to eradicate COVID is going to be a failure. So we need to learn to live with COVID. Huh? Interesting. Like that's what Ron DeSantis has been saying for for two years, right? I just want to add, uh, Zeke Emanuel also said a few years ago, he wrote in a piece um, that uh, human beings live too long and he hoped not to be alive at 70. Right. Which is uh, really interesting. 75. Did he say 70 or 75? Maybe I think it was 75. Which, anyway. But it's an interesting uh, pre, uh, it's an interesting you know thing to write a few years before COVID. Okay. So this threat to, right. threat to the elderly. So this letter comes out. And it's about how we have to learn to live with COVID. That's like, that's interesting. Like, hmm, you know, maybe this is part of that, part and parcel of that interesting move where the CDC, you know, uh, liberalizes its uh, guidance on testing and how to figure out whether you are or not somebody who should be isolating and how you should isolate and all that. But that's, that's not what it is. I mean, what it is effectively is it says, Uh, We need to collect data in a different way. So when we see a surge of some sort coming, like Omicron, let's say, or we have information that Omicron is coming, which, of course, came upon us very fast, right? It came upon us Thanksgiving weekend, and pretty much in a week to 10 days after that, we were in the middle of of an unprecedented surge. At that moment... Uh, all the levers of government need to kick in and the entire society has to lock down. That I think is basically the logic of, 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 of the piece. Um, so they use the rhetoric of learning to live with COVID as a wedge into saying, um, we, uh, we need to, we need to, government needs to have the perpetual power to shut the economy and ordinary human life down uh, if necessary uh, at will, almost at will. So uh, I think it's a pretty nervy uh, thing. Um, uh, And on the one hand, it, it would be good as they say, if there were a modern data infrastructure to offer information on the spread of viruses, you know, in real time so that individual people can make whatever choices that they feel they need to make. But um, as an outline of a national strategy to find a new normal, which is what they are saying, uh, the United States must shift to a strategy of seeking to limit the virus by suppressing its peaks rather than uh, attempting to eliminate it. Um, Suppressing its peaks is an interesting euphemism for not perpetual lockdowns, but maybe the exact kind of lockdown that will immiserate us forever, which is the instability of the possibility that at any given moment we could go into lockdown again. 
And yet the administration itself continues with this message. Jen Psaki just the other day said once again, Biden's going to shut down this virus. Like they're still using the rhetoric of we're going to beat this. We're going to win as if that's possible. The, what it struck me reading that piece, it reminded me of, of when Biden was vice president under Barack Obama, the massive effort by the by Cass Sunstein and these other behavioral economists to do all the nudging, to use to use technocratic levers of power to nudge people. Uh, using what they call choice architecture to design choices. You have to opt out rather than opt in for retirement benefits. You have to do all these different things, basically making it easier to be what they define as a good citizen, right? So that's actually the key. And there were a lot of, uh, a lot of people who pushed back on even the nudgers because what they left was more of an illusion of choice for some people, given their economic and, and socioeconomic circumstances, than a real choice. There, there was actually a strange kind of coercion that was baked into that system that the technocrats themselves didn't want to acknowledge because what they were doing was enforcing behavior that they themselves had long ago embraced on others who might not have, have uh, conformed. So the interesting thing now is that they're still using this kind of, you know, oh, we want to live with this. Oh, we're going to give people options. We're going to show them how great, how, how this is for their, for the good. We're all in this together. And yet the mixed messaging of, of the, of the things themselves shows like if they, if they shut down certain parts of the country, including schools, it's working parents who are going to suffer, not zoom class parents. If they shut down certain businesses that are, that largely employ hourly workers, those workers will suffer, not the zoom class technocrats who've designed this rolling wave of lockdowns. There isn't an acknowledgement of any of the impact of these being much more severe for people who live closer to the bone than they do. And that's what's truly elitist about this technocratically elite suggestion. And, you know, we've debated a lot on this podcast about how much uh, infringing of our day-to-day existence would people tolerate in the name of life-saving emergency measures. And, um, you know, I've tended to, I think, John, agree with you that that people can, will tolerate um, quite a lot in the, given the given the particular context um, but open ended ability to shut things down in the face of uh, breaking news about a new variant I, I think people actually actually will not uh, tolerate even even people who were formerly hawkish on covid I think no first of all no the, the credibility of that as a pol- as a policy going forward. Um, makes everyone the, the the lack of credibility uh, makes makes everyone doubtful uh, as to the efficacy of, of 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 health experts generally and why they would listen to anyone. I mean that it's just not a sound approach in anyone's opinion. It's also, you're absolutely right. It's also a backward step for people who've been living in places like Florida and Colorado, where they've tried different approaches that have been effective in terms of preserving people's right to make individual choices and individual risk assessments for themselves and their families versus the government telling them what the risk is and them being told they must believe it and accept it uncritically. So, I mean, between Florida and Colorado, we have a pretty big experiment of the last several months uh, to year uh, about the active harm. So this proposal proposal, if embraced from a top-down perspective, which is what technocrats like these guys love to do, uh, would actually send those citizens into further con- into an environment where they're being further controlled from Washington, D.C., versus what they are in now, obviously, which they uh, approve of, which is living in a state where their governor has made a different choice and can be booted out of office if, if he or she makes a mistake. I mean, it's kind of like the, the they're in the sort of negotiating stage of the, of the denial of death process here you know like 
this is this is all I think striving toward. However, however long it's going to take us to get there, um, some sort of uh, reconciling to actually understanding that we're going to be living with with some form of COVID um, without you know uh, pulling the the emergency measure card every every few weeks or months right well so i i misstated because i said it was a letter it's actually three separate op-eds that were sort of organized to be published in tandem which is very which is very odd uh in the journal of the american medical association and what's striking is that um uh, they have different views. Uh, some of the, the the sort of the the team of people who wrote these three different op eds with different authors. Uh, for example, uh, one of them, uh, Doctor David Bright, um, uh, thinks that the way that vaccines have been talked about has a bullying quality. That Biden has a bullying quality. Uh, the message continues to berate unvaccinated people and almost bully unvaccinated people. Um, and yet one of these other op-eds uh, demands vaccine mandates and says they're, you know, first of all, we need to constantly be developing new versions of vaccines to combat new variants, uh, but that uh, we must have vaccine mandates as though vaccine mandates aren't the ultimate in bullying. So, so all we have here is a, is a, is a critique of the Biden administration's handling some of it, some of it from the idea that, you know, they, they've been incompetent, some of it from the idea that they haven't been harsh enough. And then other, and whatever it is, it's like, you know, they, they just aren't doing it right. And if they listen to, it has a sort of, if they listen to me quality, except these are people that were listened to. And what happened was everything was going the way they wanted it to until the Delta variant came along. And then they just defaulted to their own priors, which is, you know, put a mask on, start closing things down. I mean, you know, where, where they could, where there was political will or the political hunger in blue states and stuff like that to do limited lockdowns and shutdowns and whatever, you know, business, business lockdowns and new rules and new regulations. And so you have this guidance, which on the one hand just seems, I think, ultimately to just be a way of saying, this isn't going the way we want it to. And so here's different contradictory pieces of advice. Some of us think that there should be vaccine mandates. Some of us think that there should be new oral therapies. We need to distribute N95 masks to everybody in the country. That's a, you know, stuff like that. And, and so in the end, it's yet another example of public health people um, spelling out in, you know, spelling out and not owning up to the fact that they're changing their ideas if they're changing their ideas because, because the facts have changed and maybe they were wrong before to advocate X, Y, or Z, but that's not what happens here. You know, and it's not that I, you need them to make a public apology or something like that. Uh, but, um, they say things with exactly the same tone of authority that, 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 uh, shift the, the emphasis, in the same tone that they used when they were the leading expostulators of the previous emphasis that they now say should be, you know, should be thrown away. Um, and, uh, and uh, for example, here's, here's another interesting uh, thing in one of these pieces, which is um, uh, we need a vaccine mandates and a digital verification system for vaccination, so-called vaccine passports, because quote, 
relying on forgeable paper cards is unacceptable in the 21st century. So yeah, so in New York, we have a digital passport, you could call it. It's an Excelsior card. You're gonna it, it goes on your it goes on your phone. So you can you can it's very easy to get it. You have the things, you put your data in, it finds you in a database and it gives you this barcode that you know says that you're vaccinated. But it is um voluntary, right? And what are they talking? So this whole thing now is the paper card could be forgeable. So you could be walking around as an unvaccinated person, but taking your brother's vaccine card and using it. And you know what? That's just not acceptable. Unless you're voting, in which case you shouldn't have to show ID at all. That's fine. But like, you must walk around with a digital barcode on your phone to get anywhere into like a grocery store. But I mean, this is how they talk about the American public. We have to make sure that they're not forging. They're not using a forged card on paper yeah well it also ignores the very understandable reluctance of people to be to be part of a digital database a healthy a very healthy reluctance i might add uh, that that americans are almost unique in the in the in western countries in embracing and protecting and should continue to be as extreme and crazy as it sometimes sounds i will say a lot of these guys are the same guys who were on the we have to make every medical record and electronic record uh kick about 10 years ago you know during all the uh, during all the healthcare stuff and oh we have to come into the next century with our medical records and what there are all kinds of unintended consequences when you embrace these kinds of top-down technocratic solutions the one that happened with medical records and talk to any doctor they'll tell you is that you go for a doctor's visit and the doctor will spend as much time staring at more time staring at a screen entering codes doing all these things to make sure the record is fine because that's the paper trail right that shows that he or she did what he's supposed to and less time looking at the patient talking to the patient doing the things that actually from a patient's perspective are far more valuable and show far more commitment to to care so i there are all and and again none of this is done with any sort of purposeful uh uh, negative uh, intent it's just that this is what happens when you create these massive systems that don't under take a particularly dim view of human nature as you say john but also make no room for human error because that's actually where the problems with the system that lead to backlash that lead to paranoia that leads to conspiracy theory that it happens there and they don't even address that possibility it's just oh we'll deal with the crazies by forcing everyone to have this this thing this passport on their phone yeah that's a great idea <laughs> right well here here's the again here's the final giveaway this is this is one of the three pieces which is the national strategy this is uh zeke emmanuel michael osterholm and Celine gounder okay so so it has various categories okay uh redefining the appropriate natural na- national risk level um the appropriate risk threshold should reflect peak weekly deaths, hospitalizations, and community prevalence of viral respiratory illnesses during high severity years, such as 2017, 2018. That year, at approximately 41 million symptomatic cases of influenza, 710,000 hospitalizations, and 52,000 deaths. In addition, the CDC estimates that each year RSV leads to more than 235,000 hospitalizations and 15,000 deaths in the United States. Um, today, the U.S. is far from these thresholds. The CDC reported the U.S. experienced 900,000 COVID-19 cases, 50,000 hospitalizations, and more than 7,000 deaths. So, um, the, this is, so we need the peak 
weak risk. Now, I, I bring this up only to say that uh, you can see how we could have here regulatory creep in which we have these risk assessments for COVID that suddenly start becoming risk assessments for flu or for RSV, um, you know, which, 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 which hits kids very hard or can hit kids very hard. And suddenly, we're not just going to have a protocol according to which we may need to shut down because of COVID. We could have a pro- protocol where we need to shut down because of the flu and not the Spanish, not the Spanish influenza, but the flu in a bad flu year. So that's one thing where this then becomes something that can be used in other cases as a means of other forms of uh, top-down uh, interference with the ordinary workings of American life. And then the second part is rebuilding public health. So that's where you get the new data infrastructure. And two things, a new, a permanent public health implementation workforce that has the flexibility and surge capacity to manage persistent problems while simultaneously responding to emergencies. A new permanent public health implementation workforce. A system of community public health workers could augment the healthcare system by testing and vaccinating for SARS-CoV-2 and other respiratory infect and other respiratory infections, ensuring adherence to ongoing treatment for tuberculosis, HIV, diabetes, and other chronic conditions. So guess what we have here? I'm from the government and I'm here to help knocking on your door of every thousands flu of season. New, yes. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of new federal employees working under the auspices of a now possibly fatally compromised profession, the public health profession. And then they get to that. And that's where we'll end this part of the conversation. It is essential to rebuild trust in public health institutions and a belief in collective action in service of public health. That's the final element of their thing. Public health institutions must have the trust rebuilt in them, as must a belief in collective action and service of public health. Why? Well, communities with higher levels of trust and reciprocity, such as Denmark, have experienced lower rates of hospitalization and death from COVID-19. Are we really now going to go into this conversation that COVID-19 is the result of, of, of an American public not having the appropriate level of trust and collective action and public health after the last two years? So what they actually want is a new public health bureaucracy, permanent, permanently funded, obviously federal, and a propaganda campaign to raise... The, the image of the public health bureaucracy that the public health bureaucracy that exists now itself has compromised and harmed. They want to claim it's because of disinformation. They want to claim it's because people wanted ivermectin. Uh, that's all well and good. But um, here's where we get to what the real purpose of this is. And the real purpose of this is to give them more power in a different way, in a way that gives them and not the, you know, politicians or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, uh, control over them. Because now this could just become part of the public health bureaucracy everywhere. And then they all work for this cause, which is to further the interest of public health and, and, and collective action. 
all all the same people who are behind this they when they're not you know figuring out these schemes they are um vigilantly on the watch for populist threats against democracy with one hand they are feeding this populism like nobody's business with schemes like this and then 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 they're worried about about a populist backlash it's uh it's amazing um and it's enough to drive you crazy and that's why you might want to consider headspace headspace is a mindfulness app okay and uh you download it you get uh because if you're the kind of person who feels like your mind doesn't have an off switch or the tension is constantly traveling through your body that's you know stress anxiety uh harms your mind and body and the sleeplessness that comes with it harms your mind and body so you can make small changes to your daily routine that will have a big influence on your mental health and well-being by starting your year with headspace so it's scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health a recent study proved in just two weeks headspace can reduce your stress by 14 percent uh, once you download the Headspace app and try its mindfulness routines, it takes just a few minutes a day to change your relationship with stress and anxiety and to start feeling better. Make 2022 the year you incorporate mindfulness into your daily life and change your mental health for the, in a positive way. However you're feeling, you can try Headspace at headspace.com slash commentary and get one month free uh, use of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com slash commentary today. Headspace.com slash commentary. Um, we have jobs numbers in and they're not good. Now, I'm going to say that every month, with the exception of one month in the last six, the job numbers have come in and haven't looked good. And then the next month, they're revised sharply upward. Uh, So um, it is a very interesting phenomenon. And so, you know, we shouldn't be making large macroeconomic judgments based on these numbers. But Abe, I guess you noticed that they had said that there would be the the expectation was there would be about 400 uh, what was the number Four, 422,000 was the estimation and, and uh the reality is 199,000 right so so the so we have a uh, we have falling short of the estimation by more than half um and uh and so it's interesting because this is december and you know like even in good times people aren't hiring or changing jobs or whatever usually around you know from december 20th to to new year's day like vast numbers of people are on vacation they're not starting work on the on the 26th of december unless they work for scrooge you know so i i you know i don't know uh so you know sometimes these numbers have seasonal reasons to express them and now we're getting this it's because of omicron uh, but again, if, if uh, you know, much of Omicron or the big surge in Omicron happened during the Christmas holidays. And so, as I say, not exactly the biggest time for, for, for hiring. Um, and once again, we also have the jobless rate plunging under 4%, uh, even though job creation isn't, isn't, isn't great. But Christine, you have a, you have a, I mean, you sort of made this observation that um, what's not happening is job creation. Right. 
Right. I mean, what what's happening is a lot of jobs that went empty during the pandemic are just being people are trickling back into those jobs. But a healthy economy depends on new ones being created. And it's it's interesting to hear how by the Biden administration is massaging these numbers every time they come out to make it sound like, look, the most amazing job jobs numbers ever. But they can't really say growth because growth implies new industries, new innovation, uh, a more booming economy. I was it was intriguing to read some of the uh, excerpts from the New York Times did a couple of focus groups about uh, with Republican and Democratic voters. And while the Democratic voters were talking a lot about, you know, oh, democracy is doomed, it's terrible, the Republicans were saying things like, once again, it's costing 50 bucks to fill up my truck. And I think that also points to the, the language that the Biden administration is trying to use, which is sort of boosterish. But again, this speaks to our longstanding conversations about inflation and some of the other uh, issues right now with the economy, which is that people don't feel boosterish about it. And that's also a problem. So if you're looking at this, the beginning of this new year, I think a lot of people were hopeful that with the mildness of Omicron, we might have another little dip, but that we get right back on track. And it doesn't feel that way. Look, schools are closing again. Businesses are still struggling. Restaurant, the restaurant industry in particular in this country continues to barely hang on by a thread. Um, it's, it's just feels like inertia and that general mood, just like the general malaise of a sort of 1970s uh, high gas prices, inflationary uh, crime addled society, that also has an effect. Those That that sense of, of not moving forward, not getting better, that's going to harm the economy down the line as well. So yeah, I think he's, they're trying to put a spin on it as every president does with these sorts of numbers, but this has been a consistently bad economy for this president. And I think it's reflected in his in his standing in public opinion polls, which I think right now his average is lower than Trump. I mean, he's doing pretty badly. He's he's around 42, 43 percent, which is like where actually, interestingly enough, if you want to feel positively about Biden's chances in the future, um, 2011, Obama was writing numbers like that, too. Uh, once once the choice became clear and he, you know, uh, we moved away from the crises of uh, 2009 and 2010 and the Supreme Court did not find uh, Obamacare unconstitutional, he battled back up to around 50 percent. And that's got 51 percent uh, of the vote in 2012. So these things are not they're they're not static. And uh, all Biden has to do is uh, perform better. And uh, how? I mean, that's really the issue here is he said this yesterday. I mean, it's like, yeah, it, if this is 1982 and we're, you know, uh, the, the, the harsh medicine to cure the stagflation problem uh, was still going through the American system and causing high rates of unemployment and unprecedented closure of family farms and all kinds of things like that. And, and, and the, and the medicine, the, the, the cure hadn't kicked in. It was the, you know, it was like chemo, uh, but uh, the turn hadn't been taken for the better. Uh, then you could say, okay, well just, we have no choice but to wait this out. And then, uh, you know, the, the turn, and then the turn came, I mean, like, uh, by 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 the first quarter of 1984 the economy grew by nine percent you know something like that and you know by the time reagan the, the election of 1984 happened reagan won 59 percent of the vote um, but he's he's doubling down on democracy is doomed argument because he's right. spending next week flying down to georgia to give his jim crow 2.0 
2.0, pardon yeah. my French, bullshit right. speech that he was doing, you know, a year ago. Like, he's right. going to go down there and say, unless we federalize local elections and state elections, we're going to in- reinstitute Jim Crow. He's That's not a positive message. It really energizes his progressive uh, flank. and They love it. But he's also lying to them because, as we've discussed many times over, there's no way this thing is going to pass. So he's feeding a, a very small, uh, radicalized group of his own party's base while doing nothing to tell the average American and the average moderate who doesn't like Trump and is still trying to give Biden the benefit of the doubt, how are things going to get better in this country? What are you doing to make things work better? But, the, right. but, so, but this make, leads me to believe that, you know, yesterday when when we were sort of assessing uh, the the political the Biden political strategy of of continuing to say, look, I'm going to I'm going to keep trump away from you at, at all costs that is my primary goal that that might have that we were saying that well that could work that's a, that's an achievable um uh message and that it's a that, that one that could prove successful um maybe it's not enough uh in the face of these problems well uh, what I, where i was going with my reagan analogy was uh that uh, even though what reagan did and volker paul volker the head of the federal reserve hadn't really been done before uh they put in what they did was so systematic that it was either going to show results or it wasn't going to show results the combination of choking off inflation and 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 stimulative supply side tax cutting was either going to work or wasn't going to work and it would become clear, right? There's no systematic anything going on here, right? There's no, it's not like Biden can say, well, once the infrastructure bill kicks in, the economy is going to turn around. Uh, there, there, there is no sort of grand design uh, and uh, build back better, uh, which is not going to pass. Uh, whatever it is, uh, you know, he was reduced to say it really wouldn't cost as much as they say it's going to cost and it will pay for itself. But not that it's going to lead. I mean, even they'll, they'll say it. They'll say whatever they want to say at any given time. But there was there's nothing in it, the purpose of which is to look back, you know, 18 months from now and say, oh, my God, the economy is so much better and people are so much better off than they than they were, you know, than they were just when we started we're really going to be on a glide path to the future. That is what happened with Clinton. Again, not to keep going to these historical analogies, but by by the time 1996 rolled around, there was again a hugely explosive quarter of economic growth because of uh, the limitations on democratic ambitions in 1995 due to the Republican takeover of the House and Senate, which meant that they... Their, their, a lot of their spending goals and so things couldn't be achieved. And then there was this, you know, uh, basically the first wave of the internet boom, you know, sort of the, the, you know, what was then called the, it was the I boom or the E boom. I can't even remember. And, uh, you know, these incredible valuation surges for internet companies and things like that. And there was this big, and so he had this explosive growth that, 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 that he rode to, win the election in 96 again maybe something like that can happen without maybe maybe a republican victory in 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 the house in 2022 will help him because it will finally be the break against his ludicrous uh, lbj ambitions and he won't be able to pursue those 
And maybe there'll be explosive growth because the pandemic really will be over and then people will feel better and that'll help him. But I'm just saying he has no plan. There is nothing in the Biden behavior over the last year. Build Back Better wasn't to sort of cure the economy. It was to fix America morally and, you know, restore the centrality of government to all, all interactions in the United States. But that, but it's interesting because so John Harris has written this piece in Politico, which is kind of funny because he basically says, you know, we keep hearing, uh, particularly from Democrats, that we're in this moment of potential civil war. We're teetering on the edge of absolute, you know, fracturing of the nation. Democracy is doomed, et cetera, et cetera. He takes another take. He's like, well, if this is a civil war, it's like the Seinfeld of civil wars. It's really about nothing. It's about the fact that both sides find are, are contemptuous of each other. But the kind of issues that fractured this nation in the past, the sort of the stuff that went on, you know, obviously slavery in the civil war but but even what the ferment of the 1960s we're not there yet and so but there is a strange investment that this this administration has it goes beyond wanting to see himself as lbj or fdr it's a kind of idea that like he's he's this great healer that's good that that if you just embrace what the democratic party tells you democracy should be if you just act like the kind of good responsible citizen that the technocratic democratic elite tells you you should be then our country will be healed and that i think is why we see both from his officials about covid remember the outburst about well you know you unvaccinated are looking at a holiday of death and destruction and doom you know these bursts come out because they're frustrated. This actually doesn't resonate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, I mean, it's interesting because AB, you went to the point, maybe, maybe it won't be enough, uh, not to be Trump, but, um, ultimately one reason it may be enough is that as you, as you said, like Trump's, we get, or Matt said, uh, Connecticut said yesterday, like, Trump is not a full participant in the national debate. I mean, he is sort of an object of contemplation, discussion, focus, and all of that. But, you know, he's off social media. He doesn't have the discipline to do to do it otherwise, right? To really kind of establish a, his own method of communication uh, that he could have and that could have created a whole new, you know, he could be on Fox five days a week, you know, if he wanted to. Um on the phone uh, on Fox and friends, the way he was between 2013 and 27, he's not doing that. Once he is back, then he is, then there is a contrast and he will have to, and he will talk about everything every day. And maybe that'll be good for him. Maybe it'll remind people enough people that maybe they, they, they decide they judged him too harshly because, you know, look at, look at the mess Biden is made of things. But, um, you know, that would also require a change in tone. The only change in tone we've seen from him, and it is interesting, though, I think, is A, the thing where he said, we, uh, I'm, proud of the vo- I'm proud of the vaccines. We need not to let them claim the vaccines. It's our thing, and it's the greatest thing we did, and we're great, and we're fantastic. And then forbearing from, from having a press conference yesterday on, on January 6th, which I think was a wise move because all, all he didn't stoke the fire and well, he, he did with his statement but uh, nobody paid attention to the statement if he had had a press conference if he had really had a serious significant press conference which you know maggie haberman would have attended like it's not like the the, the general effort which is to make sure that no one can hear his disinformation or something like that it, 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 the the 
the it would have been too uh, impossible to ignore. And he decided to go silent, which is like the this you know it's like those moments when the classic rule during political conventions was you let them have the they got four days you let them have the four days don't try to counter program against it we have our four days they have their four days it's all going to be evanescent anyway D- you know don't don't play the fighting game you know let them say what they have to say right and and then and people got too impatient because of social media and all that and stopped doing that and started fight you know like doing whatever they could to get in on the story of the other party's political convention and it's kind of stupid because it makes it lowers the conversation it makes them it, it, it doesn't do any good really and trump's talking on january 6th wouldn't have done him any good but i go back to abe's extremely wise prediction when he when trump first got booted off of social media which is that that was the best thing that ever happened to trump because you we don't see him in our faces and in our ears and on our airwaves every day and it leads to i think exactly the question you posed john which is that if he does come back people will be like oh maybe maybe we did they'll have to relearn uh what he really is like if he's given that airtime but if he's smart he'll never get back on that stuff and yeah. it, it was also the worst thing to happen to democrats by the way but biden's numbers would look better if if the country was day in and day out reminded yeah. of of what of what trump meant um with that you know from yeah. from the horse's mouth so to speak right but that's why i say if he actually does run in 2024 and is the rival he'll be the rival you know, I mean, what he ought to do is is be Biden in 2020, right? Say so he has to sit in the basement and stay in the basement and then let the, you know, let, let the election be about Biden. But, uh, you know, that that's the, his that's not why he would do it anyway. So it would be him, you know, and 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 people would then be 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 reminded unless he changes. And as I say, there are these little hints of, you know, the, like he's testing a change a bit um but you know people don't really change uh although you know good good meds you never know i don't know mike pompeo lost 90 pounds <laughs> yeah this is getting a lot of attention i don't know why but yeah he yeah. he does look different two words gastric sleeve see that's my suspicion and, but he's giving all these interviews about exercise look, and diet I'm somebody i had a i had lap i had lap band surgery 12 years ago it had a great effect on me nobody loses 100 pounds in six months without having gastric gastric sleeve is the new thing you do or not new but whatever he had a gastric sleeve. He's not telling anybody that he had a gastric sleeve. That's stupid because it would actually be helpful to people to know that it has this kind of dramatic effect. It's uh, like the ladies who go on vacation impossible. and yes. they come back so rested. I'm like, yes. are you really rested? Or <laughs> yes. yes. Anyway, it's okay, by the way, because it's a just because you have a surgical intervention doesn't mean right. that it, it does He's not healthier. mean that your it's life good. has changed. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so uh, if he contacts me and says he didn't have a gastric sleeve, I'll, I'll, I'll apologize. But he had a gastric sleeve. Anyway. <laughs> and uh, other, other, other people who are 100 pounds overweight should do it, too. It's really a fantastic, uh, it's a really a fantastic thing. And probably, you know, say, I don't know if it saved my life, but it, 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 had, it, it was a much less, a much different procedure I had than he had. And in some ways, much less effective over time. But nonetheless... Has, has had very positive consequences. So with that, <laughs> that personal revelation, uh, 
Uh, wish you all uh, a very uh, happy uh, weekend, and uh, we'll be back on Monday with some guests next week as Noah continues his vacation. I think we're going to have uh, Yuval Levin with us on Monday. So uh, until then, for Christine and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. Thank you.